Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm thrilled to have you this morning as we study the Word of God together. When I went to seminary, I had a number of Koreans that were in seminary with me. And what I learned is that Koreans consider the church a very serious thing. They can also be very opinionated, which oftentimes has led to church splits in Korean congregations. One statistic I read said that the average Korean church splits every eight years. They have a hard time getting along together. One particular situation I read about was very interesting. The elders had a secret meeting to fire the pastor, and then the pastor heard about that. Before they could give him his resignation papers, he actually talked to a judge and had the judge bar the elders from attending the church through a restraining order. And as you can see, it was a very public division, a division that split into two different congregations. And I know you're thinking, well, thankfully, we don't do things that way that much in America. That's not the way we conduct ourselves. No, when we have division in a church, typically we don't split and start a new church. We just leave the church we're attending and go to another. Isn't that oftentimes the, the way we handle things? Every church is going to face times of conflict. It's going to face times of disagreements and misunderstanding. It's going to face times of sin. So many times that leads to a church in rupturing. That leads to a church splitting. That leads to people leaving. But you know, it doesn't always have to happen that way. There are some churches that handle their divisions and disagreements differently. Some churches seem to be able to weather those kind of storms. They work through their hurts. They work through the misunderstandings. They work through the offenses. And they don't let it blow the church apart. And the question I have for you is, what's the difference? What enables some churches to survive the inevitable disagreements and misunderstandings that happen between people, while other churches can't survive that? They end up splitting People end up leaving, and the church blows apart. This morning, we're going to find out the difference between what makes a difference between how a church can survive disagreements between people and why some churches end up dividing when there's disagreements between people. This morning, we begin Philippians chapter 2, and we are only going to be looking at the first four verses in that chapter. Paul is actually writing, we saw this letter from a Roman jail. He's writing to the church in Philippi. It was a church that he planted and a church that he deeply and dearly loved. I mean, he really loved these people. As we've seen throughout this book, there's so many terms of affections that he uses with them. For instance, I wrote down some of these. Paul says, I, I just thank God for you, he says at one point. He also says he prays constantly for them. He says at another point, he plays with joy for them. Paul loves the Philippians. We also find as we look through the book that thankfully for the Philippians, it wasn't a church that was riddled with doctrinal errors. Paul doesn't spend a bunch of time trying to correct them because they've left Christ or they've left the gospel like the church in Galatia had. 
So this is a church that Paul loves. It's a church without really doctrinal errors. But there was a deadly snake in the grass. There was a poisonous viper weaving its way among them. And this viper was biting them and infecting them with venom. And it was destroying them from the inside out. What is this deadly viper that is destroying them? It's division. It's disunity. It's disharmony in the church that is destroying it from the inside out. Let me show you what I'm talking about here right from the book of Philippians. Paul writes in Philippians 1.27 from a verse we studied last week. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Apparently, they weren't one spirit and one mind. And then in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche, agree in the Lord. Ladies, stop fighting and dividing with one another. And then right here in Philippians chapter 2, which is a section that many people consider to be almost the center point, the, the crowning jewel of this letter itself, we find Paul pleading, pleading for this church to be a united church. Let me go ahead and read it to you. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, in this section, it's uh, maybe not necessarily apparent in the English, but in the Greek, it's very clear what Paul is driving at. There's only one verb, actually, in the Greek, and it's this, being of the same mind. He wants unity in this church. And all the words in these four verses around this one verb of being united, of being of the same mind, sort of decorate and inform what it means to be that way. Let me just give you some description of how Paul is divided of these verses. At the beginning, he's going to talk about motives for unity. Then in the middle, he talks about the marks of true unity. And at the end, he talks about the method to be able to achieve unity. And I'd like to just put these together under three questions. The first thing we will look at is, why is unity important in the church? Then, what does a united church look like? And lastly, how do we achieve unity in the church? So let's dive right in and answer these questions with the answers that Paul gives us in these verses. Number one, why is unity important in the church? And it's from these verses, verses one and two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. 
And Paul gives us uh, five answers to the question of why unity in the church is important. And he begins with this, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And I want to begin with this word, if, because when we read it, uh, the, the first thing we think of is maybe this is a questionable thing. Like maybe you have these things and maybe you don't have these things. And that may be uh, the way that some people want to translate that or understand that, but that's not what it means. In the Greek, it's very clear. It's called a first-class conditional cause. clause. The if here is not something that may be true. It is something that we know is true. You can essentially substitute the word since for it. Paul is saying, since we have encouragement in Christ, since we have comfort from his love. So the idea here is since you have experienced all these things, we should be going out of our way to be of one mind. We should be going out of our way to be a united church. Let me explain these different things that he has for us here. We have received, he says, encouragement from Christ, or in here, any encouragement in Christ. Now, the word encouragement is the Greek word palakalesis. It literally means to come alongside, to help, encourage, and counsel. Paul says, haven't we experienced this, where Jesus Christ has come alongside of us? He has encouraged us. He has counseled us and given us wisdom. He has come to our aid in our time of need, especially when we felt so overwhelmed. And Paul says, because Christ has been so good to us, he has come alongside us, he has encouraged us, he has helped us. Shouldn't we respond by giving to him one of the things that he so dearly wants from us after he has been so good to us? Shouldn't we give to him the unity that he so desperately wants among us? We should be of one mind. Now, the backdrop to this actually goes back to John chapter 17. In John 17, it was Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, he prays for us. And look how he prays for us today. He says this to his heavenly Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer is just as he and the Father have great unity together, that his people would be known for their great unity together. That's what Jesus wants. Or you can see it also in John chapter 13, verse 35. It says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The relational wholeness, the relational unity between God's people, between the church, is one of the great signs to the world that Jesus is present among us. So Paul says, since we have received so much comfort from Jesus, so much love from Jesus, doesn't that just give you incredible incentive 
to give to Jesus the one thing he really wants from us, which is unity among us. You know, when there are divisions in the church and there's infighting in the church, realize that we're not so much breaking a law. We're not so much violating an institution. We're breaking a heart, the heart of Jesus Christ himself, who prayed and desperately wants us to be a united people, us to be a united church. And then Paul also gives this. He says, and if or since we have comfort of Christ's love, we have the comfort of Christ's love or literally any comfort from his love. And he's moving from the common experience of the comfort we have received from Christ in our times of anxiety and trouble to the common experience of the love we have received from Christ. Now, isn't it true that Jesus has given us an amazing, amazing amount of love? No matter how many times we have failed Jesus, no matter how many times we have sinned against Jesus, no matter how many times we have disappointed Jesus, doesn't he still love us? Doesn't he still forgive us? He never turns his back on us. He never gives up on us. Jesus loves us so much. He constantly forgives us, and he constantly extends grace to us. If Jesus loves us and forgives us consistently, how can we not love and forgive others consistently like Jesus has forgiven and loved us? And he also says this, any comfort from his love. Now this word comfort is interesting. It's the Greek word paramethion. It literally means gentle cheering. It's the idea of somebody coming alongside of you and whispering encouraging words in your ear whispering their love for you in your ear. Now, haven't we received that from Jesus? At times when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel depressed, when we feel like we can't make it anymore, has Jesus ever whispered his love for you in your ear, desperately wanting to let you know how much he cares for you, how much he loves for you? If Jesus loves us this much, and he's constantly whispering his love for us, how can we not give back to him the one thing he desperately desires of us, which is unity in his church, healthy relationships in his body? How can we not swallow our pride and give up our offenses for the sake of pleasing Jesus who loves us? And I say this again, that when we persist in divisions and disunity and, and not agreeing with one another in the church, we're not so much violating a law. We're not violating an institution. We are breaking a heart, the heart of Jesus Christ himself, who passionately loves us and who whispers that love in our ear. The next thing Paul says is we have participation in the Spirit. He says, don't you have, if you have, or since you have, participation in the Spirit. And now he's moving from the, the experience of the common encouragement we have with Christ and the love we have from Christ to the common experience we have with the Holy Spirit in our life and what he is doing in all of us as Christians. The word participation, it's incidentally the Greek word koinonia, 
which means sort of partnership together. It means friends working together towards a goal. We met that word a, a few weeks ago in, when we were studying the beginning chapter of Philippians. And the idea is that in partnership, you are working together or being united together to accomplish something. And what Paul says here, as Christians, who has the Holy Spirit dwelling in our heart, the Holy Spirit has renewed us. He has made us into new people. He has convicted us of sin. He has steered us and he has guided us. But what the Holy Spirit is also doing in us is he is working in us, guiding us to work together as a team, as a, as a body. We're all different parts of that body with the different gifts from the Spirit designed to work in unity and harmony together. Now I ask you, with that being one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit himself, do you think the Holy Spirit wants harmony in the church? Do you think the Holy Spirit wants us to put away our disunity, our divisions, and our infightings? Oh, most certainly he does. In fact, when we persist in disunity and divisions, doesn't that grieve the Spirit just like it grieves the Son? It does. And Paul's argument is, how can we persist in being divided with one another when we would grieve the Spirit so deeply to do that? The Holy Spirit wants unity in the church. As it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for there is one Spirit. We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. So remember, divisions among us, infighting between us. It's not so much breaking a law. It's not breaking an institution, but it's breaking the heart of Jesus and it's breaking the heart of the Holy Spirit himself. Then Paul says this, we have affections and sympathy from God. Or if there is, or since there is, he says, any affection and sympathy. And these are very interesting words. Uh, affection literally is the Greek word splagna. It means feelings from the gut. In uh, our modern times, when we love somebody, we say, I love you with all of my heart, because the heart is the seat of emotions. In the ancient world, the heart wasn't the seat of emotions. It was the guts that was the seat of emotions. So people would say, I love you with all of my guts. And this is what is saying here. You need to realize that God loves you, and he does not love you in a cold, sterile, indifferent way like he's a machine. God loves you as a person. He is a person. In fact, God has emotional love for you. This word splagna, the idea of loving you with all of my guts or from all my heart, it's interesting because in the Greek version of the Old Testament, in the Song of Solomon, it describes the way the husband loves his wife. He is passionately, emotionally in love with her. And that is the description of how the way God loves us. He passionately and emotionally loves us. And if he loves us like that, and he loves all of us like that, doesn't it grieve his heart to have great divisions between us? 
and divisions among us? How can we grieve the heart of God who loves us so deeply? And then he also uses the word sympathy. It's the word in Greek of oikirmos. It means the tender mercies of God. Literally, that means uh, God giving us far more kindness than we ever deserved. Isn't that true? Hasn't God given us far more kindness than we deserve? We deserve the lake of fire. We deserve eternal condemnation for our sin. That's just. But what has God given us? His son has died for us and freed us from the penalty with our, of our sin by simple faith and trust in him. But not only that, Jesus has adopted us. We are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, the most highly exalted and most blessed being in the universe for all of eternity. In fact, think of this. Being in Jesus' presence is the place of complete and total joy. There will be no more joy-filled beings in all of eternity than you and me because of our identity with Jesus. Hasn't God given us so much more than we ever deserve? And then think of your life now, not just the life to come, but how Jesus has convicted of, you, of sin and he's made you into a new creation. And then he has given you a church family, a place where we belong. And think of all the other ways he has saved you in this life and blessed you in, your li in this life and your family. How could we return to him? such ingratitude as to be in conflict and division with our brothers and sisters in Christ, those with whom we will spend eternity with. How could we express this ingratitude to God Jesus for all that he has done for us? So you can see the theme that Paul is driving home with these multiple descriptions. What is the motive for why we would pursue unity in the church? Look at all that God has done for us. Look at all the love and encouragement and forgiveness that Jesus has given to us. Look at all how this grieves him, and it grieves the Holy Spirit, and it grieves God when there are divisions between us. How could we be so ungrateful as to not swallow our pride, but give up the, our offenses and pursue unity with our brothers and sisters? That's the motive that uh, Paul is driving at here. And then Paul throws in one other thing. He says, a leader's joy is the unity of the people. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. In essence, Paul is saying, you know, if you can't connect with anything I just said, if you can't sense the amount of ingratitude that you have expressed towards God, and towards Jesus and towards the Holy Spirit by continuing to pursue uh, divisions and holding on to disunity. If you can't understand any of that and connect with it, just think of it this way. You know, give up your disunity and your infighting and do it for me, he says. Please, just do it for me. Remember, Paul is the founding pastor of this church in Philippi. He greatly cares for this church. He loves this church. And when he sees divisions and disunity amongst the people that he loves, it breaks his heart. So he says, do it for me at least. Give up those disagreements and fighting. I like the way he says this. He says, complete my joy. 
remember that for a while Paul has been talking about that he has joy even though he's in prison because the gospel is making progress. He has joy even if he is executed because he will be with Jesus. He says, you want to give me real joy? You want to make me really happy? Then get along with one another. Stop fighting with one another. Understand that the divisions you are having between one another are nothing compared to the unity we are to have through Jesus. Make me happy that way. I like the way it says a similar thing in Hebrews chapter uh, 13, verse 17. And obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning but that would be of no advantage to you. And as a pastor, I can tell you who sat through many different conflicts that people have in the church, uh, trust me, those conflicts are groaning. They are not joyful. They are difficult. And I would say the same thing. Do it for me. If there is divisions and disunity between us, put it away to give joy to your leaders. Now, Paul continues here. And he moves on. He's talked about the motive for why we pursue unity in the church, to to please Jesus, to please the Holy Spirit. Now he's going to talk about what a united church looks like. What What do they look like? And I'll tell you what up front, the picture he's trying to paint. He's saying that a church that is united is a church that is beautiful, incredibly beautiful. Look how he spells this out. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says this, it is a church where people have the mind of Christ about things. He says, by being of the same mind, and the word mind here is the word phronio. It does not mean, by the way, agreeing about every little things. It means unity because people can think like Jesus about the bigger things. Interestingly, the Greek word phroneo is used 23 times in the New Testament, but 10 of those 23 times are all in these just four chapters of this book of Philippians. And so it clues us in that the people here were having a really hard time thinking the same way about things. Now, what does it mean to think the same way about things? Does it mean that all of a sudden we should make sure we all agree on what is our favorite color? Does it mean that we should all agree on what is our favorite movie? We should all agree on what is our famous, our favorite furniture? Absolutely not. What this is talking about is being able to achieve a higher level of unity, a unity that is bigger than the things that divide us. And this unity This higher level of unity comes through Jesus. Jesus is the big picture that keeps us united together. Maybe a way I can illustrate this for you is by uh, going to another book in the New Testament, the book of Corinthians, and telling you about the church in Corinth. When Paul writes to that church, we find that is a very divided church, a church filled with factions, where some people say, I'm following Apollos. Others saying, I'm following Cephas, which is Peter. Other, I'm following Paul. And so you have all these little groups and factions between the church where they don't seem to get 
that they're really following Jesus who creates the unity between the church, is the umbrella that would, divide, that would unite them together. You can think of it this way. You have factions in the church of Corinth, some who like a certain worship style, some who like a certain leader, some who like a certain small group. And Paul is saying, no, Jesus is where the key thing is that unites us together. Let me read for you from 1 Corinthians 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind, and that's our key word, and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are, is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And what we have here is that the petty divisions in the church were happening because they couldn't get the big picture of Christ in the church. What they needed to do is get out of their shoes and look at the church through Christ's shoes. And their groups then would all of a sudden dwindle and fade away. Because when you see things from the perspective of Jesus, then you're not necessarily seeing it from just your little perspective. What Paul is telling the Philippians, and he's telling the Corinthians, and he's telling us, is have a higher mindset. Have a mindset of looking at the church like Jesus. So that way you're not consumed with petty groups and petty divisions, but you're seeing the entire church like Jesus sees it, and of your small role in it. Next week, when we get to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we're going to see how Jesus is the model for unity in the church. But let me just bring Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 in right here this morning. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of Jesus in us, seeing the church like Jesus does, is what unites us in the church. He also says this, a united church is a church where people love others as Jesus loves them. So we've just seen how unity in the church happens when people look at the church like Jesus looks at the church. Now we're going to see that unity in the church happens when people love other people like Jesus loves other people in the church. The mark of Christian unity is that people in the church love one another like Jesus loves them. It's not that the rich are favored and the poor are ignored. It's not that the older people have a click and the younger people have a click. But there is an intentional choice by the people in the church to love everyone in the church equally, like just like Jesus loves them, playing no favorites. And let me tell you, when a church has the mindset of Christ and sees their, their church from Jesus' shoes, and when a church loves other people like Jesus loves them, it's a beautiful thing. It's an attractive thing. It's not a divided thing. Look what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. We are to love one another with brotherly affection. In fact, we are to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Or 1 John chapter 3. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That in the church, that when one person is hurting, it doesn't matter who they are, that others in the church step to the plate to meet their need because we love one another equally like Jesus loves us. And then Paul says this, a united church is a church where people have their souls knit together. Literally, it says here, being in full accord. This is the only time in the New Testament where this word is used. It literally means being of one soul. Uh, we would say it this way, that the people in the church are soul brothers, deeply knit together in the level of their heart, where they genuinely care about one another, they genuinely feel the hurts of one another, and they genuinely can celebrate the joys of one another. A United Church is where people put prayer requests out, and that prayer request comes and the email is not deleted, but the church loves those people. And they pause and they actually pray for those people, not just in a quick executional way, but in a way that their heart is engaged because they genuinely feel the pain of their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. When a church sees... <laughs> sees the body not in factions, but from the standpoint of Jesus. When a church loves one another like Jesus loves them, and when a church is knit together in their souls, where they care for one another and feel each other's pain, and they celebrate with one another's joys. It's a beautiful thing. And then Paul says this. We won't spend much time on it, but it is a church that operates as one, and of one mind, he began by saying United Church is of the same mind. Now he says literally United Church is of one mind. Literally, there's no division among them, and it is a beautiful thing. Well, we've seen the motives for unity in the church. Unity in the church is what, is what pleases Christ. It pleases the Holy Spirit. Divisions grieve Christ. It grieves the Holy Spirit. We've also seen the beauty of a united church. A united church is a beautiful place because people can think like Christ. They love like Christ. They're connected to the souls because of Christ. Now the question is, how do we get there? This is what Paul answers at the end. How do we get unity in the church? And we find this in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's the way it breaks down. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit. That's literally do nothing from selfishness or conceit. Now, what does this mean? Let's talk about this idea of selfish ambition. It's the Greek word erythion. It means promoting ourselves or the interests of ourselves at the expense of others, or promoting ourselves and our interests above others. It's a me-first attitude. It's what I want attitude. 
I like the way Aristotle talks about this. Aristotle talked about this. It describes a politician running for office. Someone who says, you want me and I am your answer. And Paul says, we have to eliminate from our lives all kind of self-ambition and self-promotion that says, I am going to promote myself above you. In the church, it cannot be a place where we're always trying to get our way. It cannot be a place where the church has to be just the way I like it and just the way I want it. If we approach our relationships with one another with an attitude where I'm going to get my way at the expense of your way, which is oftentimes what many church disagreements are, the result will be division. The result will be disunity in the church every time. The other word that he talks about is this, conceit. It's kenodoxia in Greek. It means literally empty glory. It, uh, it's the idea of thinking of ourselves as better than others and looking down on others, when in reality, we're really no different than others. So uh, when it came to selfish ambition, that was talking more about an action. This here is talking about a state of mind. It's the way you think about others, and it's the way you think about yourself. It's the idea that your opinion is better than other people's opinion, or that who you are is better than who other people are. And whenever you have people in a church who see themselves as God's gift to the world, who see themselves as better than other people, you will have division in that body. That's always the recipe for breaking things apart. Now, what Paul does at this point, he says, eliminate selfish ambition, eliminate conceit, but replace it with this. Humility. In humility, we consider others more significant than ourselves. Literally, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And here is the key. Humility is, my friends, the key to unity. Humility is the key to unity every single time. In the ancient world, humility was not considered a good thing. The idea was, was to be strong and to overpower others and to impose your will on others. That was originally seen as a good virtue. But when you look in the biblical world, you see the exact opposite. In the Old Testament, humility was considered a virtue. In the, Jesus, humility was considered a virtue. And as well as the apostles, humility was considered a virtue. Now, let me explain to you what humility is so there's no misunderstanding here. You want to memorize this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's actually just thinking about yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. Now, Paul has just said, get rid of conceit, which means thinking of yourself as better than others. He says, but in humility... Think of others as more significant now than yourself. Go the opposite direction. Instead of thinking that you're better than others, think of others as actually better than you. And you're more concerned about them and their needs than you are about you and your needs. That's humility. That's the recipe for unity. 
maybe a practical application of this is uh, just our simple conversations. Do you find yourself in conversations with, with other people? Oftentimes, we like to talk about ourselves because we know ourselves best and we're our own favorite topic. What does humility look like? Humility is I'm not necessarily here to talk about me. I'm here to hear about you. Talk to me. I want to hear about your life. I'm interested in your life. I'm treating you as more significant than myself because that's the recipe for unity. It's through humility. Interestingly, next week we will look at Jesus and Jesus models humility and he models this, doesn't he? He existed in glory with his Father. He, he existed in complete and utter delight. Yet he considered our needs as being sinners on our way to eternal damnation as being more significant than himself. So Jesus humbled himself. He took on a body so he could identify with us. He was tortured. He was beaten. He died on a cross for us because he considered our needs more significant than his glory. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your humility. It's your humility that when we pursue it, gives unity. Paul also says this, in humility, we don't just look out for our interests, but for the interests of others. In verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Remember a moment ago, he said, get rid of selfish ambition, which is promoting your desires and your interests above others. Now he says, replace it with humility. The idea where you take an interest in helping promote others' interests and others' desires. Not saying you don't ever consider your own, but you promote others and you care about them. You care about what concerns them. And once again, Jesus is our model. He decided to not just think about himself, but he cared about our interests and our problem. And he came and he humbled himself and he was born in a stable and he lived among us and he died for us all out of his humility. Now we began, my friends, by looking at unity. What is the recipe for unity in the church? Unity in the church we found when there's humility among the people of the church. And when the people of the church are following Jesus in the church, that's the answer where humility or unity is found. Let me quickly run through a few of the applications of this. Number one, uh, the only way to have unity in the church is to have humility in the church. We need to consider the needs of other people and other ministries, not just our own interests and our desires. Oftentimes, I've seen in churches, you find that people have niche ministries, sort of like in Corinth that we covered a little bit ago, where they have a sort of a single focus on things and a single interest in things and a single group of friends. And that is a recipe for disunity, where we should have a mind like Christ, see the church from his perspective in a broader unity. We should love others the way Jesus loves us, not just our individual friends. So unity in the church is only found by people humbling themselves like that. Number two, the only way to have unity in multi-site is to have humility. Each campus considers the needs of the other before its own. 
when we stepped into multi-site, as we did research for that, one of the things I found that alarmed me with multi-site churches is that sometimes there is bitterness and rivalry, rivalry between those campuses and fighting for resources. And from day one, we made a decision that Philippians chapter 2 would be the theme of the way that we would do multi-site church. We were going to be a gospel-centered multi-site that in humility would consider the needs of the other campus before the needs of our own campus. And that would go both ways from both campuses. And that, my friends, I think is what has kept Spencer and Spirit Lake so well and united together. Because what is it? Humility is always the recipe for unity. Also, the only way to have unity in marriage is to have humility. We put the needs and desires of our spouse before our own in marriage. Now, this is consistently a thing. What we find is we conceit breaks relationships where you think of yourself as better than others. And as soon as you're in a marriage and you have one spouse that starts to look down on the other spouse, think they're better than the other spouse, what do you have? Disunity. Where in humility, we consider others more significant than ourselves, our spouse more significant than we are. The same thing with selfish ambition. If in a marriage, there is a spouse who always has to have things their way, the way they want it, it's a recipe for disunity. It's a recipe for marital breakdown. What does Paul say? Be humble and look to others' interests, not just your own. And in marriage, it's, honey, it's not just what I want, but what you want is more important to me. That's the recipe for unity in marriage, not division in marriage. And lastly, the only way to have unity during COVID-19 is to have humility. We need to be willing to be inconvenienced as we consider the needs of others when we return to normal. On June 14th, we are going to be uh, reopening Crosswinds Church. It'll be an exciting time when we get back together. But I need to tell you that it's not going to be what it was. It, it just can't, at least not right now, as we're still in, in the middle of this pandemic. We're going to have social distancing that is going on. We're going to have three different venues on the Spirit Lake campus that are going on, two of those being videos. Uh, we're going to have the idea that we have to exit the building right after the service, and we'll have less singing. And I've already seen this kind of stuff on social media, where people get angry and say, you know, if you are worried about getting the virus, you stay home. But don't you dare inconvenience me and my life. Folks, that's the recipe for division and disunity. But as a church, we're going to be different. We're going to be known for our humility that consider others more significant than ourselves and look to their interests as more important than our own. So my friends, we have seen this morning great motives for unity. <laughs> unity is what pleases Jesus is what pleases the Holy Spirit. Disunity grieves them both. We've seen the beauty of a united church where people love others like Jesus loves them. They're of one mind. They're of one soul. And we've seen how to get there. The key to unity is humility, where we consider others more significant than ourselves, and we look to others' interests, not just our own. My friends, may crosswinds be a humble and united church.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these four verses that Paul kicks off this second chapter with. I pray that we would internalize them deeply, that we would be people who pursue humility, that when we are wronged and we are sinned against, we humbly would give those up, we humbly would move on, and we would humbly continue to love and forgive our brothers and sisters like you have forgiven us. And may we never be a church that is a divided church, but we may always be a church that is joy-filled with unity because the humility of Christ is present among us. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.